Good morning, everybody. This is Alan Alley from Abrams and Pissero, or Alley and Pissero. And we're going to be doing all things PERS this morning. I'm going to take you through a presentation that I've got. I'll give you some websites and addresses that you can go to to get more information. It's a critically important subject. This is not going to be your typical Sunday morning talk show. This is more like uh, PERS 301. It's, it's more like an entry-level graduate course in uh, the PERS liability, in the public employee retirement system. Uh, first thing I'll take you through is background on this, why I ran for treasurer years ago, and realized that this is the biggest liability that the state has. The PERS liability is the biggest liability the state has. And as the treasurer, I think you had the mandate and the platform to really speak out on this subject. So I spent a lot of time working on it. I talked to the people uh, that worked in the treasury. I talked to the people that were on the, the public employee retirement system board, talked to the people on the Oregon Investment Council, which is the side that manages all the money. I talked to the actuaries who do the work for the Oregon Investment Council. And began to develop an understanding of this incredibly complex problem. Uh, I've written a series of articles on this, and I'll post the links to those articles so that if you want to, you can read those articles. The first one's on the liability. The second one is on the assets. And the third one is on possible solutions. And I'm going to walk through a lot of that in the slideshow today. So with that, let's get started. So I'm just checking to make sure that this worked out. There we go. The public employee retirement system, the, the first thing I'm going to post is a rather uh, shocking and thought-provoking statement. This is the definition of a Ponzi scheme. And I want you to read through it and think about that as I'm going through the, uh, the outline of what we have with PERS today. And I'm not blaming the people that have PERS. I'm not blaming the retirees. You made a deal years and years and years ago. We have to live up to that deal. Um, what I'm blaming is the legislatures year after year after year who have basically played played a game of kicking the can down the road. And we're going to see just how big that can is and how far down the road it is. So the first thing is, when I looked at it, things don't add up. They talk about a $50 billion liability, $50 billion in assets, 80-year average lifespan, $10 billion payroll, $5 billion in payments to existing retirees. It just there's all these numbers, billions and billions and billions, and, and there's a lot of rhetoric around it. Um, people aren't clear and concise about assets, liabilities, and solutions, and that's what we're going to do today. Uh, the one that jumps out at me when I look at this is the last two bullets. The $10 billion annual payroll, that's the annual payroll for everybody that's currently on that's received that is 
uh, eligible to receive PERS. They're active employees, 10 billion annual payroll. 5 billion in payments to existing retirees. We pay $5 billion to the people that are already retired, just the people that are already retired. So the payments to the people that are already retired are already 50% of your active payroll. So if you were running a company and you had an active payroll of a million dollars, that was your total payroll for every employee you have, you would be paying half a million dollars to all of your retired people. And that inflates at 2% per year for the rest of their life. So already that, it means things are out of whack and not sustainable if we keep it going the way we are. So a little history on PERS. It began in 1945, and it began as kind of a supplement to Social Security. One of the things that you'll find in Oregon is that Oregon has not only the public employee retirement system benefits, but also our state employees uh, receive Social Security benefits. Some states opted out of Social Security. We didn't. So it was meant as an augmentation to Social Security. Uh, there's three tiers, three different, these are like different plans, tier one, tier two, and tier three. Uh, tier one is incredibly lucrative. Um, there are some differences between tier one and tier two. Tier two is about uh, change some of the uh, more lucrative benefits, shall we say. Uh, tier three is, is put out there as, oh, we solved everything with tier three. That's not true. And when you get through this presentation, you'll see that everything was not solved with, with tier three. So a little background on, on what uh, the, the public employee retirement system benefit is. It is a defined benefit program. There's, there's two fundamental types of programs, a defined benefit program where you make a promise that at some point in the future, we will pay you a portion of your salary based on your number of years of service. That's a defined benefit where you've defined the benefit. The other is a defined contribution, like a 401k, where you say, uh, you put in a hundred bucks to your retirement system, we'll match a hundred bucks in your retirement system. Once, that, once that's done, the obligation of the employer is over. Here's your hundred bucks. It goes into your account and starts accruing based on the investments. The defined benefit is in the future, at some point in time, when I don't really know what your salary is going to be, we're going to pay our retirees a portion of their salary. And this is what it is. So tier one and tier two, there's general service and there's police and fire. Police and fire get uh, special treatment in this. Uh, 1.67 times your number of years of service. And uh, for police and fire, it's 2% times your number of years of service. So let's take police and fire because it's easy. If you work for police and fire, for 40 years, um, you would get 2% times 40, you'd get 80% of the average of your three highest years of earnings in a benefit 
for the rest of your life that also inflates at 2% per year. If you work for 40 years, if you work for 30 years, you get 60%. Tier three is about 10% lower. It's still a defined benefit program, but it's about 10% lower than uh, tier one and tier two. So it's 1.5 times your number of years of service or 1.8 times your number of years of service. And at 30 years, that's 45% and 54%. Doesn't sound too out of line. The trick here is, is that if you use vacation pay and overtime and boost your last three years of, of pay, you can raise those numbers substantially. And it's fairly straightforward to get your benefit to equal about 100% of your pay. Now, you've got to work 30, 33, 35 years to do that. You have to do some things with vacation pay to do that. But you can basically get 100% of your salary. And it's guaranteed uh, for life. And in some cases, guaranteed for your spouse's life as well. Now, on top of that, there's a thing called the Individual Account Program. And this is exactly like a 401k. So on top of the defined benefit, you add this in. And this is where you absolutely get people up to 100% or more in terms of the annuity. So on this one, 6% of your salary goes into a 401k account. Um, it's not deducted from your salary in most cases. In most cases, it was negotiated in a contract years ago where they just added 6% in. And then on top of that, you have your Social Security benefit. So you can pretty easily see, even, even in sort of a median case, you work for 30 years or so. Let's look at this. Uh, let's say I'm general service. I work for 30 years. I get 45%. If I do some things with vacation pay and overtime, that's easily going to bump up to about 50%. The individual uh, account program, uh, that adds about 15 to 20%. So let's say 15%. So now I'm at 65%. And then Social Security on top of that, Social Security can be another 20%, 30% or so. Um, so I'm pretty close to 100% just right there, just with a, a median. It's a great benefit for these people. The conclusion, and I'll tell you the conclusion before we get into the whole presentation, is we have to look at the cash flow. So with all these complex formulas, how much cash in terms of checks does the state have to write year after year after year to meet this obligation? And then how is that cash flow growing over time? Nobody talks about this, but that's what we're going to talk about here. I'm going to take a break for just a second. This is Ali and Pacero with our friend James Ball. Pacero and Ball are not here today. It's just Alan Alley going through the public employee retirement system. Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. 
Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503-558-6349 or proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Welcome back to Alley and Pacero. This is Alan Alley. I'm doing an overview of the public employee retirement system benefit for the state of Oregon. Uh, James Pacero and James Ball are traveling this weekend. So we talked about what is the cash flow? What cash is required to meet this obligation? Uh, when I started researching this, I, I didn't know where I was going to get the information. So I pulled up actuarial tables. I pulled up uh, current employment numbers for the state. I figured out how long people were going to live. I used the, the calculations that you saw previously, and I calculated this chart. And this was my chart that I created. And I'm not showing it to you because it's perfect, but I'm showing it to you because before I ever found the real information, I had identified that the PERS calculation looks something like this. Each one of these bars is how much money in dollars each year the state is obligated to pay to just the current employees, only the current employees. This chart assumes that there are no new hires at all. And you can see it grew from about 4 billion in 2017 to 8 billion or so in 2031 when I first did this in 2017. I then found this chart, and this chart is the real chart. It looks very similar to the chart that I created, but this is the real chart. It's done by a, by a group called Milliman, and Milliman is the actuary that Oregon hires. It's an outside group that Oregon hires to do the calculation of this cash flow. This is the heart of the PERS liability. It all starts with this. These are not my numbers. These are Milliman's numbers. These are the numbers that they use, that they provide in an annual assessment that they give to the state of Oregon. So let's look at this. In 2020, this is the cash checks that the state had to write to the um, 165,000 retirees or so, $5.3 billion in checks. That grows to $8.5 billion by 2041. Um, the blue are the people that are already retired. Currently in 2019, when this was created, they're already retired. The inactives are the people that worked for the state for a while, worked for the government for a while. This is state, county, uh, and teachers, but no longer do. <clears throat> but at some point, they are eligible for PERS. And employed, these are the people that are working for PERS, for those PERS jobs today. All of this green is tier three. By definition, the only people that, um, that, that are eligible. The growth in this is all 
uh, tier three. The growth in the green is all tier three. So when I looked at this, you hear about an $80 billion actuarial liability or something like that. That's the number that you keep hearing and that we have about 55 billion in assets, 60 billion in assets, and that's the gap, the $25 billion gap. But when I looked at this, I went, oh, that's about 8 billion. So this is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. So wait a minute, I'm already over 80 billion, right? If you total all of these bars, you get $231 billion. So where does this $80 billion liability come from? The actuarial liability of $84 billion. Where does that come from? When if I add up all the cash bars, it's $231 billion. It doesn't make any sense. What it is, <clears throat> the $84 billion is Milliman, who does a great job, calculating if we had $84 billion in the bank today and that $84 billion accrued interest at 7.2%, you would have enough money to pay this entire liability over these 30 years. Let me say it again. If we had $84 billion in the bank today, and every single year we could make 7.2% compound, 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 and we were paying out these amounts of money, when we get to 2050, we'd have no money left and everybody would be paid off. That amount of money would cover these 374,000 people, which are the current retirees and the people that are currently working. It would not cover anybody who gets hired in in the future. So if you hire somebody tomorrow, not included in this. And this is the heart of the issue. Now, people say that tier three solved the problem. Well, if it did, this bubble would never grow. But if we go back to 2012, you can see it's grown enormously since 2012. It's gone from 177 billion in cash flow in the in the total of all these bars to 231 billion in that period of time. It's gone from a, a peak of about, oh, 7 billion or so in here to a peak of 8.5, almost 9 billion. And that's only in six years. That's between 2012 and to, that's 2018 update. I haven't done the 2019 update yet. So the liability is enormous. It's a quarter of a trillion dollars. And it's growing exponentially as we hire new people. So what is an actuarial liability? These charts take you through some discussions about this. Remember I said it's 
84 billion invested at 7.2%. Well, what does that actually mean? What that means is also, if you took this number out here, let's say that's $8 billion, and then you discount it at 7.2% for every year, how much money would I have to have today invested at 7.2% that it would grow to be $8 billion by this point in time? Well, the answer is I need eight tenths of a billion dollars. I need $800 million. If we had this $800 million today and it grew at 7.2% compounded after 30 years, it would be equal to what we have here, $8 billion. Now, this has a lot of assumptions. It assumes that everything's going to go fine and we're going to grow at 7.2% every single year. That doesn't happen. Uh, the average growth for the Oregon investments has been 72 to 7.4%. So that's good. They've done a very good job of managing the money. But going forward in our current environment, are we going to be able to sustain that? I call this government math. <clears throat> and I'll take you through an example of this. This was a house in Roseburg a few years ago, probably not $400,000 anymore. <clears throat> but I, I looked at the house and I said, okay, it's $400,000. If I put 0% down, 4% interest to 30 year fixed, this is what my payments would look like for this house. And these are my principal payments that total 400,000. These are my interest payments. You can see at 4%, it's almost 50-50. So my, my monthly payments around $1,800. Now, nobody tells me, oh, don't worry about this, Alan. Don't worry about the $687,487. Um, in fact, when you go to the bank to get your loan, all they talk about is you realize you're going to pay $287,000 of interest on a $400,000 principal. You realize you're signing up for $687,000 of payments over this period of time. But if we use the same technique that the government uses of applying a discount rate to this and discounting this liability back to today at a 7.2% rate of return, the actuarial liability of our 687000 is $281,000. Now you look at that and go, Alan, that's stupid. Where'd you ever come up with that? That's ridiculous. Well, that's exactly what they're doing with the PERS liability when the real liability is $231 billion, but they tell you that it's an $80 billion liability. It, the, the math works. It's just, it leads you to the wrong conclusion. They're not really lying. They're just using the math to, to lead you to the wrong conclusion. And that's why this presentation is important. And that's why understanding 
the basic concepts is important because this is our liability and we have to fix this and nobody else is going to fix it. Well, maybe the federal government is going to fix it. But as far as Oregon's concerned, this is our liability. Our legislature created this. It's not the fault of our retirees. It's the legislature and governors for 30 years who, frankly, I don't think really understand this issue that have capriciously dealt with it and kicked the can down the road. We're going to take another break. This is Alan Alley on Alley and Pacero with her friend James Ball talking about PERS. The Portland spirit is headed to the river. Hop on board today for great views of the Portland skyline and historic Milwaukee waterfront. See our local landmarks and bridges from a unique vantage point on the river. Grab a cocktail on our outer deck while enjoying some of our delicious local cuisine. Fun for the whole family with options including lunch, brunch, dinner, and the famous Heart of Portland cruise. Tickets can be purchased at portlandspirit.com. Welcome back to Allie and Pissarro with our friend James Ball. This is Alan Alley on this Sunday talking about the public employee retirement system liability and how are we going to deal with this? Is it going to bankrupt Oregon? So there's a few myths about this that I want to get into. The first myth is that tier three fixed the problem. Well, it didn't because if tier three fixed the problem, those green bars wouldn't, wouldn't keep growing. Um, in fact, this is what the, the bubble looks like if you take it all the way out until when people die off. I, there's no other way to say it, but that's what happens here. The reason this starts dropping, the reason this curve starts dropping is because people are dying. If you look at the total liability all the way until everybody's gone, it's $352 billion. This is only for the existing employees. When you hire an employee, they would add on out here. So what does it look like if I do that? <clears throat> this is what it looks like. This dip right here, that's the dip. That's the difference between tier three and tier one and tier two. Otherwise, this curve would keep going like this. So tier three saved us money. No doubt it saved us money. But we, we go through this little dip and then we're right back on the, the same curve. The numbers are extraordinary. <clears throat> this actually wouldn't be nearly as big of a problem if the government was required to fully fund the liability when the people were hired. And that's, that's what would happen if you had a defined contribution plan like a 401k. The big problem here is they're making promises in the future and not putting the cash away today. So another thing is, is that tier three isn't as good as tier one and tier two, those poor people on tier three. Well, let's look at tier three. So this is somebody <clears throat> that hires in to work at the government, not a high level person, uh, $15 an hour, which is going to be the, the minimum wage. 
it assumes no overtime, no vacation accrual, and that their uh, wages increase at 2% per year, which is low compared to the historical average. Their lifetime salary over, over that period of time is $1.3 million. If they retire, their defined benefit, this is the defined benefit part of the PERS liability, over their actuarial life is about um, $700,000. The IAP, that 6% that was put away for them, uh, that would be about half a million dollars. And then on top of that, they have Social Security, and Social Security would be forecast to be about $800,000. So the total of the retirement benefit is $2.1 million of all of these, this layer cake of benefits. That's $2.1 million in retirement when their lifetime salary, their lifetime earnings was $1.3 million. That's a pretty good deal. And if they live beyond this, it just, it just keeps growing. So it's, it's a very, very good benefit. The problem is we're not putting the money away to meet that benefit. Another myth is that the problem is really caused by a low assumed rate of return. So this is the assumption of market returns, the 7.2%. And remember, I, I, I said this is the amount that if you invested $84 billion at 7.2%, you could meet this cash flow obligation. But let's see what happens if we change this 7.2%. Let's say we don't make 7.2% uh, compounded. Let's say we make, oh, 5% compounded. The actuarial liability grows from 80 billion to 110 billion at 5%. The cash flow stays exactly the same. Nothing changed in the cash flow. If I go back, the, the graph is exactly the same. Nothing changed in our liability. Nothing changed in the dollars of checks that we have to write to the retirees. Nothing of that changed. The only thing that changed is the optics. You drop to 5% and this actuarial liability grows to 110 billion. So changing the market rate of return does not affect the total liability that we have to pay out. As a matter of fact, if you took the market return to zero, the cash flow still stays the same but now the actuarial liability matches the cash flow. Why? Because to pay $231 billion over 30 years and you don't make any interest on that money invested, you'd have to have $231 billion in the bank today to pay that return. So the conclusions are there's a big difference between the actuarial liability and the cash flow. We really have to focus on the cash flows. The problem is solvable. It absolutely is solvable. But what you have to do is you have to basically cut up the credit card. 
you have to stop promising a benefit in the future and not funding it today. And I think the only way to do that is really with a 401k type program where the employee puts in some money, the government puts in money, that becomes the retirement benefit, that's invested, and it grows over time. And then we have to wrestle with this $231 billion liability. Um, the, I talked about the solution being a 401k. It's just a structural way of making the government address this. Now, I'm going to take a break and then we're going to get into the solutions, uh, the potential solutions. All of these um, all of these ideas and this whole overview is up on, uh, we posted it to a website. I'll give you the web address for that when we come back. And we can go through the different types of solutions that we've got um, meant to open the discussion and get people thinking about this in a different way. This is Allie and Pacero with our friend James Ball. This is Alan Alley talking about PERS. Okay. There we go. Okay. Welcome back to Ali and Pacero. This is Alan Alley talking about the public employee retirement system benefit that we have and what we can do about the liability that we've created. So we've talked about the liability. We've talked about the assets. Let's talk about some possible solutions. So the first one, when I ran for treasurer, I'd talk to people and people weren't upset that some of their neighbors had this PERS benefit. What they were upset about is that they didn't have it. And I initially said, that's ridiculous. That, and that's a silly thing to, to even say. But then I thought about it and I said, maybe there's a way to do this. So here's an idea. Uh, I call it PERS for all. That the state sells something like a war bond. Uh, we'll call them PERS bonds. It has a guaranteed rate of return. Let's say it's 5% double tax-free, meaning no state taxes, and no federal taxes. Now, this may require legislation to do this. This may require some work in Washington to do it. But let me just lay it out. It's not that far off what other things have done. Oregon uh, Public Employee Retirement Fund would take the money and they'd invest it. If they generate their 7.2% compounded, which matches what they've done historically, they would make an additional 2.2% per year and give Oregonians a guaranteed 5% return, double tax-free, backed by the state. So if you bought these PERS bonds, all of a sudden you have a portion of your investments that are guaranteed and they're just going to accrue and grow and grow and grow. And it's very predictable, very predictable. And 5% double tax free, that's more like seven and a half percent pre-tax, I think. That's a pretty good return if it's guaranteed. Boom, 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 boom. 
it's not that unusual. In fact, um, different geographies, different school districts and things have done this where they borrowed money to pay their PERS liability. They're doing kind of the same thing. So it's a concept that I think would be very, very interesting. It would require a ton of work, probably a lot of legislative work as well. But if a governor decided to do this, I actually think you could get something like this done. And it would have a material positive effect on the liability that we have. It would be much better than raising taxes. Because if we don't do something like this, you're going to have to jack taxes right through the roof. As a matter of fact, in Oregon, we've had all these tax increases over the past 15 years, and you don't see any benefit um, in our roads, in our schools, class sizes. You, you don't see anything better. Where's all that money going? Well, a lot of it's going to pay the PERS liability. They just don't tell you that. The next idea is a concept that I came up with years ago. I call it tax the government. And the all funds budget for 21-23 is $99 billion. That's all the state government, the local, not the local governments, the state government, the um, uh, teachers, the money that goes to K-12, university system, all the money that the state spends, $99 billion for two years. That's up from 59 billion in 2013, 2015, right? 68% in, uh, what's that, seven years or so. So what this is, is put a PERS surcharge on every state agency of say 3%. That would raise $3 billion every single year. So what would happen is I'd get my budget uh, I run Department of Administrative Services. Uh, I've got a $3 billion budget. I'd get hit with my $3 billion tax. I'd take that right off the top. That tax goes to pay the PERS liability. And it's a way of spreading the burden across all the different agencies that have seen their budgets grow by 68% in the last seven years, eight years, 68% in the last eight years. So you tax them 3% per year. That seems like a fair trade to me. And $3 billion would help a lot. That would be a great step in the right direction. Now, before you dismiss the idea and scoff at it, the Department of Administrative Services, which is the Department of State Government that does admin services for all state governments, so supplies computers and computer systems and databases and payroll and all, all the administrative services, they fund the Department of Administrative Services by taxing the other agencies and paying money to Department of Administrative Services. It's exactly the same. What I'm proposing here is exactly the same. Again, take a lot of work. The governor could probably get something like this done, uh, but it would take it would probably take a governor to do that. Here's a thought: What if we just hired fewer employees? <laughs> That's a novel thought. 
one of the things you need to recognize is government employees that have the PERS benefit are extraordinarily expensive. And hiring, each time you hire one, um, you're taking on a giant liability. Back in 2012, Phil Kiesling did a study on this. And in the private sector, when I ran companies, if I paid somebody um, $100,000 a year, we would have about $25,000 a year, about 25% in other benefits. That would be healthcare, it would be vacation pay, retirement, 401k, that kind of stuff, about 25% of their salaries. So that $100,000 employee cost us $125,000, roughly. Phil Kiesling did a study in 2012. And for the government that has come, uh, employees on PERS, that $100,000 employee would cost you $200,000. There's another $100,000 in benefits. So a $60,000 employee is $120,000. Now, those are great benefits. I don't begrudge any of those employees for getting those benefits. I don't begrudge any of the employees for having the PERS benefit. You'll notice in all of my discussion here, I never talk about taking away benefits that current employees have. No. If we go to a 401k, that's only for new hires. You do these types of things. This is only for people going forward. I believe you earn those benefits and it's the responsibility of the citizens of Oregon to live up to the obligations that we have. But new employees are phenomenally expensive. What you need to do is you need to hire less, hire better, hire less, and use computer systems, software, processes, techniques to lower the number of employees that we need to perform the tasks that are necessary. The last one is, is one that I'm uh, especially intrigued about, and I call it the Oregon Peace Corps. And what this would be is that you'd hire high school graduates that could do some of the entry-level jobs, that could um, be the people that are working at the Department of Motor Vehicles that are doing some of the paperwork there, that could uh, be people that are doing uh, paperwork jobs or uh, answering phones or you know, on a help desk or something like that. They would receive uh, full salaries, but they would have no retirement benefits. You wouldn't be accruing retirement benefits. The benefit that they would receive is a credit for the Oregon University system and or the uh, or for the community colleges. And what you could do, and I don't I haven't proposed how much or how fast this would accrue, but let's just say it was a year for a year. If they worked for four years, they could accrue enough credits for free tuition for a four year university. Now, this does a couple of things. It engages people in government, which I think is a good thing. It gets them working in government. The second thing is it, it ties them to uh, the community because it, it really is like the Peace Corps. 
it really is like they're helping out in our communities and working in our communities. And it creates a positive relationship between the state uh, and these individuals because the state is now paying for their college education. Uh, I think it could be a marvelous benefit. And this is this whole thing of we need to hire fewer and fewer of the premium benefit people to allow us to do that and then focus the resources on only the best and brightest and highest performing premium benefit people. This is actually what happens in Singapore, where some of the very, very best jobs in Singapore are the government jobs, and they hire the best educated, best people, highest performance people into those jobs. And it would allow us to start shifting things in that direction. These people could be aides in classrooms, in schools, for example. The last one, uh, unfortunately, is probably the one that is most tangible and most real, and that is a massive federal bailout of the state pension systems. The liability for all state pension plans is about $1.5 trillion. And as we've seen, the federal government could just say, eh, we'll just print the money. Uh, President Biden's infrastructure plan isn't really infrastructure in the classic sense. It's not roads and bridges and airports. It's people that are working in adjacent industries and raising the income. It's all kinds of stuff. This fits right in with that. And it would not surprise me if buried in it, uh, because I think in the last PPP proposal, some of this was buried in there. The government's just going to write checks to, to bail out the pension plans. Now, it's very, very tricky because most of the underwater pension plans are in democratic, democratically controlled blue states. Uh, and you're asking the blue states to get bailed out by the red states. So even if the federal government manages to do it, what you're doing is driving the country apart. Um, the other thing is several of the blue states, I think Rhode Island, for example, have taken steps to meet their pension obligations and tax, raise taxes and change the benefits. So the ones that have had the best behavior, they would get punished as well. And the ones that have been most lax, and Oregon is right at the top of the list. Oregon is way, way at the top of the list. Um, would actually be rewarded for being fiscally irresponsible. So I don't like this solution. I don't think we have to have this solution. Um, it would be interesting if the federal government did something with money that would incentivize you to make some of these changes, like, say, Okay, if you go to a defined contribution plan going forward, we'll give you some matching dollars to pay down your defined benefit liability. That could be kind of interesting. I don't think that's going to happen. And oh, by the way, it's so freaking complicated. Uh, I, it, it's politically complicated. It's mathematically complicated. Um, I don't think they're they have the ability to craft something that's that balanced. So, but it, it probably is something that, that will happen. 
as we go through this process. So go back to our definition. Um, I'm not going to pass judgment on this. I'll just let you kind of read through it. Um, I don't think it's been done maliciously. I think people just don't understand. Uh, they don't really get it. They haven't spent the time to dig in to do this level of investigation. The good news is, with the right leadership, there are tools that we have to work through this. It isn't going to be easy. It's not going to be painless. We're paying for the sins of the past for the last 30, 40, 50 years as this is sort of spun out of control. But we can deal with it and we can get through this process. Here's all the sources for everything, um, all the background information that you need. I wanted to show you uh, the articles. I think I can flip over to this. There's a series of articles that I wrote and you'll see them. I, I just posted. It starts out with uh, the first one from October of last year that talks all about the PERS liability. And you can go through, this is on the Oregon Way uh, website. And this pretty much covers the entire presentation that I just did in um, maybe an easier to digest fashion. This is sort of PERS 101. The second thing is uh, do a deep dive on the assets. So really digging in and examining where are assets uh, how are they allocated? What's going on there? We could do a, a whole hour on just the, the assets that we have. And then the last one is on the solutions. And this talks about a little more in depth about the solutions that I proposed uh, for this. You can go to The Oregon Way. Here's the, the website right here. The Oregon Way. And just search for Allen Alley and PERS. P-E-R-S, and you can pull these up and read through them if you're interested in, in learning more. So thank you for joining us this morning. It's been a pleasure to be with you. We'll be posting this on Facebook, on the Abramson or Ali and Pissero uh, website, and then we'll also turn it into a podcast that we'll be posting on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Thank you very much. Have a great Sunday. Thanks for listening. This has been Ali and Passero with your hosts, Alan Alley and Jim Passero. The podcast is produced by James Ball. Be sure to follow us on Facebook. And if you'd like to contact the show, you can send an email to alan at alanalley.com.